I wonder how similar my experience with the book of Obadiah is to many of yours. I think I was in my mid-teens when I first read through the Bible. And as I've read through the Bible over the years, I I've must have read Obadiah a, a dozen times or so. Likely in a day as part of my Bible reading plan, right? And I've tried to imagine what I thought or how I responded to the book in the past. And I'm afraid it probably went something like this. God's really mad at Edom. They're going to get it. God's justice is serious. And the rest of this stuff is super confusing. I think I'll read a psalm, you know, like just. <laughs> and then I'd forget all about it. There, there are many sections of scripture like this for me that, that seem wonderful, right, but also strange and bewildering. Right about a year ago, I decided to pick a book of the Bible, and I was just going to read it over and over again for a week or so, all with the intention of, of understanding what God was saying through this book. And I chose Obadiah. No shame, because it was the shortest book in the Old Testament. <laughs> As I started this, uh, this little journey, which proved not to be so little, um, I just kept continuing to think, like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, here here's a, a few things that stood out to me in my studies immediately. No one really knows who Obadiah is. It's a common name in the Bible, but none of the Obadiahs elsewhere in Scripture seem to be our Obadiah. The outline of the book isn't super clear. Its genre is debated. Its date isn't certain. Its relation to other books in the Bible is perplexing. It's not directly quoted in the New Testament. And the rhetoric of Obadiah is brilliant but confusing. An early follower of Jesus, Jerome, wrote this little bit of encouragement in his commentary on Obadiah. He said, it is as difficult as it is brief. Thank you, Jerome. <laughs> At least we're not alone. Uh, consider this, though. This has blown me away. God has breathed out the scriptures for his people, giving us wisdom for salvation and equipping us for every good work. And in his providence and his perfect wisdom, he gave us the book of Obadiah. Think about that. God means the message of Obadiah for your good. And let me just say, too, that this little book has ministered to my heart in unexpected ways these last two weeks. It's been my prayer that the Lord would use it this morning to minister to yours. I think we're okay. A quick outline of our time today. Uh, we're going to be looking at three days that we see in the scriptures. First, Esau's day of judgment. That's going to be verses 1 through 10. Then Jacob's day of disaster, verses 10 through 14, so a little bit of overlap there. 
and then the day of the Lord. I'll conclude with verses 15 through 21. So Esau's day of judgment, Jacob's day of disaster, and the day of the Lord. With that, let's start at the beginning, and let's read verse 1 again. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let's go to war against her. So, so maybe an obvious question to begin with is, what or who is Edom? A little historical background is, is necessary here. So we get to travel way back in time, all the way back to Genesis 25, to another divine communication from God. In this case, to a woman by the name of Rebecca. She was the wife of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. Rebecca, who was previously not able to have children, became pregnant with twins. And we read that the children struggled within her. She, she pleaded with the Lord, why is this happening to me? And the Lord answered her and said, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And this is exactly what happened. When the time came, the first one came out, red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, really beastly-looking. They named him Esau. After this, his, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob, which means heel grabber or deceiver. As was promised by the Lord, these two people would become two nations. Esau would become the father of the Edomites, and Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, would become the father of the Israelites. And from the very beginning, Jacob wrestled to take what God had already promised him. You're likely familiar with the story. We'll, we'll recap, though. The boys grow up, and on one occasion, Jacob schemes to take his brother's birthright. And as such, Esau famously trades his status as the firstborn, his inheritance, God's blessings, for a bowl of red stew. This is why he was called Edom. Sounds like red in Hebrew. So a hairy red man who ate a bowl of red stew. It was an appropriate name. But later, Jacob conspires with his mother to take Esau's blessing, and as a result, bitterness roots itself deep in Esau's heart, and Esau promises to kill his brother, Jacob. Jacob flees and is gone for 20-some years. There is eventually a, a point of coming back together, a, a bit of reconciliation, as it were, but, but the text is a bit ambiguous here, and... And as the story unfolds throughout Scripture, we find that continued hostility and resentment amongst the brothers exist. Uh, consider here just a couple examples. Generations later, when Moses is leading the people of Israel through the wilderness, they ask if they can pass through the land of Edom, and Edom refuses. Moses pleads even, and they say, if you come through, you'll meet the sword. Scattered throughout the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you, you see similar patterns of resentment and aggression amongst the brother nations. 
That's actually some fun homework for later. Just find a concordance and look at Edom, and you just see these patterns over and over and over again. Well, in the book of Obadiah, the Lord is saying concerning Edom, enough. I'm done. At this point, the nation of Israel, because of its ongoing disobedience to the Lord, had already been divided. The northern tribes had been conquered and taken out of the land by Assyria. The the southern tribes had been conquered and driven out of their land by Babylon. And Edom's role in all of this had spurred the wrath of God. And with this, we turn to Esau's day of judgment. Let's pick up reading in verse 2. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. For the nation of Edom, judgment was coming, and it was coming with certainty. The particulars as to why are expressed later, but what's striking with the opening of the vision is how directly to the point it is. There is no hint that judgment might still possibly be avoided. Whatever Edom's offense, their day of reckoning is near, their time is up. And any security that Edom has is dismantled. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it, he asked. Well, Obadiah echoes this and declares, you might think you are safe. You might not be taking this seriously, but that's because your arrogant heart has deceived you. Starting in verse 3, the prophet begins to systematically draw our attention to the things that Edom had placed its hope in and exalted in. So first, their, their lofty dwelling place. Edom was nestled in a naturally rocky fortress with narrow passageways that provided protection against potential invasions. Who can touch us, Edom asked? Who can bring us down? For me, this has been and continues to be maybe the most unnerving sentence in the book, this next part here. Listen to the Lord's reply. The creator of the cosmos, the one to whom nations are like a drop in the bucket, the one who lifts up islands like fine dust, Yahweh responds to the rhetorical question and says, I will bring you down. Do you feel the weight of this? We'll circle right back to this, but, but let's first read verses 5 and 9. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape harvesters came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. 
he will be unaware of it. And that day, this is the Lord's declaration, will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Timon, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. So here, Obadiah starts by giving two examples of what it not, what's not going to happen. This isn't going to be as if common thieves come and pillage the land, taking what they want and, and leaving the rest. Last year, our, our car got broken into. And by broken into, I mean we left the door unlocked and someone came and took some stuff. But what was interesting is they, they took my wife's wallet, which we don't normally leave in the car, and, and they left a container um, of gift cards, right? Common thieves. This is not what's happening to Edom. It will not be as if when harvesters come, pick the good fruit and leave behind the vines and the rest. Esau will be absolutely ravaged. Verse 7 says, your allies, your friends, those you trust, will betray you. In verse 8 and 9, notice the repetition of judgment language here. Your wise ones and your warriors those who fight for you, will be terrified, eliminated, destroyed by slaughter. Some of your translations uh, might have these verses written in the past tense, which is true to how Obadiah wrote his prophecy. Um, the way the translation that we're reading out of translates it as future tense is, is also true in a sense. Um, so, so what's going on here is Obadiah is referring to these events with such certainty that he talks about them as if they've already happened. Edom's time is up. When this day comes, Esau's fortress dwellings cannot protect them. Their allies cannot protect them. Their wise ones cannot protect them. Their mightiest warriors will not be able to protect them. I will bring you down declares the Lord. So again, do you feel the weight of the statement? The gravity of God's righteous anger against rebels. On one hand, uh, we're supposed to marvel at the awesome judgment of the Lord and actually take comfort in this. We don't live in a world where the, where the villain gets away, where wickedness has no consequence. For God's people, Judah, and us, his church, this is one of the main purposes of the book of Obadiah. And we'll consider this more in a moment, but, but now I think it, it's appropriate to stop and tremble at the consequences of pride. Edom is an illustration to us this morning that a proud heart will blind and deceive you straight down the path to destruction. You might be familiar with Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Well, right before this, Proverbs 16, 5, we read, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. If you are in sin... You know it, and, and you have convinced yourself that somehow you are okay, you are deceived. 
Maybe you've convinced yourself that your sin isn't that bad. Like, who's it really hurting? Maybe you actually think you can hide your sin. Like, no one will find out. Maybe your heart has become so arrogant and so callous that you're fully aware of your sin and you just don't care. The judgment of Edom is a warning to us today to turn and to humble ourselves before the Lord. Like Edom, we will give an account for our sin. And like Edom, everything that we place our hope in, apart from Christ, our status, our relationship, giftedness, our dreams, our desires, on and on, they will all fail to provide any real security. So don't exalt your wisdom above the wisdom of God. Don't believe that you can hide your sins. You can't. God sees your heart even now. Don't harden your hearts as Edom did, waiting until it is too late. Turn from your sin while there is still time. James 4.6 quotes another proverb. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Edom's day of judgment is shouting to you to turn and humble yourself at the feet of Christ. It is by grace through faith alone in him that we can be saved from judgment. So turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. He is merciful and he is ready to forgive those who call out to him. It is to God's mercy that we continue to look in the next section, particularly in his compassion for those he loves. In verse 10, the prophet continues with his announcement of God's coming wrath, but he also transitions and for the first time summarizes for the reader a reason for why Edom is being punished. Look at verse 10. You will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because, because of violence done to your brother Jacob. So here we consider the second day. Jacob's day of disaster. Follow along again as we read. Let's just continue to familiarize ourselves with the passage, verses 11 through 14. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster. And do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives. And do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. Well, here Obadiah continues to play with present and future tenses, going back and forth. In verses 10 and 11, we, we have some very clear indictments against Edom of what Edom had done, past tense. Then in 12 and 14, it, it seems at first like he's giving warnings or instructions of what Edom should not do, future tense. 
I think we're actually maybe familiar with this way of talking. As, as I was considering this, I, w- I was thinking, I actually talk to my children sometimes this way. Like when I'm sitting next to them on the edge of the bed, ready to give a spanking, and I, I look at them and I say, you do not hit your brother. Or, or you do not say no to mommy. What I'm doing there is saying, here's the expectation, here's the prohibition, don't do this. But I'm also saying, this is exactly what you've done. This is why judgment's coming. And so what we see here is is Obadiah further exposing Edom's crimes. These are a list of prohibitions for Edom, yes, but, but really to everyone. No one should treat a brother this way, and this is exactly how Edom had treated Judah. Quickly here, uh, we first discover that on the day of Judah's disaster, when Babylon invaded their land, Edom did nothing. They just sat back and watched their brother be ravaged. They just watched. But then as we continue, we see that it's actually far worse than this. They watched as they gloated and rejoiced over the downfall of God's people. Then we find that Edom actually participated in the invasion, entering the city and seizing the possessions of the Lord's people. And as if it could not get any worse, we see that on their day of disaster, Edom cut off those fleeing from Judah and turned them over to their enemy. Back in Genesis, when the Lord chooses Jacob as the vehicle through whom he would carry on the promises of Abraham and bless the nations, we read, those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed. Esau could have acknowledged the Lord's plan for his brother to rule over him instead of despising his birthright and threatening to murder Jacob. Edom could have let Israel cross through their land instead of threatening to destroy them with the sword. And here, Edom could have mourned the destruction of Judah instead of delighting in their downfall. But they didn't. And as such, these acts were all direct assaults against the Lord's sovereign purposes. Conversely, though the Babylonian invasion and captivity was God's just sentence for Judah's ongoing disobedience, the Lord actually used this to humble them. And we see in Judah a picture of what it looks like to cry out to the Lord, to to lament. We find that even in their exile, even in their defeat, he had not forgotten them or abandoned them but was instead still caring for them. He claimed them as his own. In fact, uh, the first section of Obadiah, what we just read, it makes multiple references to the Lord. The next section that we'll look at in a moment, it makes multiple sections about the Lord. In this section, though, there's no mention of the Lord except in verse 13. We're speaking on behalf of the Lord 
check this out, Obadiah identifies Judah as my people. And this highlights again the reason for God's judgment against Edom. Yes, their pride. Yes, in general, God does not let the wicked go unpunished. All that is true. But the main reason given in this little book is that Edom is under the wrath of God because of how they have acted against his chosen people, a people whom he loves and shows compassion. In this way, the message of Obadiah continues as a warning to those who stand against the sovereign purposes of the Lord. We also see, though, a picture of the Lord's compassion and are reminded that in our darkest days, the Lord sees and the Lord cares. Church family, every tear that you have cried, every hurt that you have felt this last week, the Lord sees and the Lord cares. In the midst of your suffering right now, abandonment, betrayal, loss, heartache, whatever it is, he is near and he is working for your good. And he has power enough to do so. He could not promise to cut off Edom or vindicate his people if he were not sovereign over the nations, but he is. And he is sovereign in the midst of your suffering. Christian, if you are tempted to despair, or if you find yourself wondering, where is the Lord in your hour of trouble? Know that he is in control, and his plans for you have not been frustrated. What's more, he's actually using your suffering to sanctify you, to show you his goodness in your life to help you to lean into him and trust him more. So trust in his sovereignty and faithfulness. Pour your heart out to the Lord. He is good, and even when troubles heap upon troubles, he sees and he cares, and he will make things right. He is making things right. This leads to the final day we look at this morning the day of the Lord. Let's read the final section of our text one more time, verses 15 through 21. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down, and be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them, and the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin and will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah 
and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zephyrad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Obadiah continues with the theme of Edom's future day of judgment, but there's an unexpected twist. While Edom and Judah are still in view, he, he broadens the scope of his announcement of judgment to include all nations. For Obadiah, Edom has become a picture or a type of all peoples who exalt themselves against the Lord. In this final section, he concludes his announcements against Edom, but also he joins the prophets and other biblical authors in looking forward with hopeful anticipation to a time when God would put a final end to sin and suffering, eradicating evil and establishing everlasting peace. Justice will prevail. The wicked will face God's righteous wrath, and those who delight in the Lord and trust in his promises will reign with him and receive perfect rest on Mount Zion and a new Jerusalem. On par with what we've already seen of Obadiah's style of writing, the timeline of events here gets a bit blurry. But typical of prophetic writings, Obadiah doesn't distinguish between the more immediate context and the distant future. The fulfillment of his prophecy, they, they merge together and appear at first anyway to all take place at the same time. So we ask, when did this or, or when will this day occur? Well, first, I think it's legitimate to start with uh, what happened historically. Do we have any record of any of these events having taken place? Though it was in phases, a day of reckoning did indeed come for Edom. We know the nation was invaded and conquered, perhaps as quickly as within a couple decades of the prophecy given here. The prophet Malachi, you can read this later this afternoon, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he confirms that Edom would never rebuild or never recover. And history testifies to this. Later invaders would, would drive the Edomites out of their land. Within the century, they would lose their identity as a people, and they would drop out of recorded history. Well, what about Judah? This one's a bit more difficult. History also records that the Jews would be restored, at least in some sense. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read about them returning from their exile back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. The locations, all those funny names that we just read described in verses 19 and 20, their surrounding territories to the north, south, east, west of Jerusalem. They, they outline the promised land as it were, and, and Judah would return to reclaim the land promised to their forefathers. But this would be overturned again, and the Jews would be conquered again. The temple would be destroyed again. So Obadiah's words here have further meaning and point to greater fulfillment. 
In this way, the, the day of the Lord has come, but it was also coming. Or another way to say it, we see in Edom's day of judgment and Jacob's day of disaster and the return of Judah from exile, we, we see intrusions of an ultimate day of the Lord. The New Testament authors confirm for us that this fulfillment is found in Jesus. Consider two examples. First, Acts 2, the, the day of Pentecost. Peter looks at the prophecy of Joel, Joel 2, if you want to read that later, in which there are described signs of the coming day of the Lord, and he sees their fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, very clearly refers to the second coming of Christ in his letter to the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, and he writes this, the day of the Lord will come, to which I think Peter would see no contradiction and say amen. This is the hope that Obadiah points us to. We should see the dawn of this coming day and Jesus' sacrificial death and his triumph over the grave. Were it not for God's love for us in Jesus, we would drink the cup of God's wrath. But as it is, Christ has taken the place of sinners and has consumed the cup for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we should be in wonder at the cross and the resurrection. But we should also look forward to the consummation of his kingdom and a day when we will dwell with the Lord. Friends, we live in a state of, of already, but not yet. In Christ, we have been forgiven. We have been made holy. We have been justified. We have been adopted into God's family, all the things that we just sang about. We have been called on mission to proclaim the news, the good news of Jesus. And so in all of this, we rejoice now, today. But still, we look forward to a day when our strivings will cease, when suffering will end, when every tear will be wiped away, when God will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And we will see Jesus face to face. Obadiah not only offers comfort to the broken, but he holds out real hope for God's people. So brother, sister, lift your eyes to the hills, to a heavenly Mount Zion, for surely our help is coming. Why has the Lord given us the book of Obadiah? Well, in part, to illustrate to our need to turn and humble ourselves before the Lord, to encourage us to trust in his sovereignty and his care for us, and to lift our gaze to the hope we have in Jesus, both now and in the new creation.
few years ago, I was talking to Sam Burig in our backyard. And we were just going back and forth talking about themes and patterns that we see in scripture and just getting excited about it. And, and I'll never forget, Sam looked at me and he, he said, dude, God wrote a book. <laughs> he did. He wrote a book. And he wrote Obadiah for your good. What do we do until that day comes? We close with the exhortation from the preacher in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. It reads, As such, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray.